Welcome to the Startup Help Desk. We are here to answer your questions about startup companies, building businesses, selling businesses, and the meaning of life. We have a panel here of experienced founders, entrepreneurs, and investors, people who have built businesses, sold businesses, bought businesses, invested in businesses over many decades. And we are here to share our experience with you answering questions that you asked. So if you're a founder, an employee at a startup company, or you're thinking about doing it, ask questions. That's how this show happens. You can find us on Twitter at the Startup HD or on the web at thestartuphelpdesk.com. That's thestartuphelpdesk.com. Ask questions. Everything you'll hear today are questions that were asked by people just like you. I'm Sean Burns. I'm a multi-time founder. I've started companies like Flurry and Outlier.ai. I've raised well over $100 million in venture capital. I've invested in dozens of companies, coached dozens of CEOs, invested in close to a dozen venture funds at this point. And I have seen and probably made every major mistake you can make in building companies. And I'm here to save you that same hassle. I'm joined by two illustrious founders who will introduce themselves, Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name is Ash Rust. I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the United States, Canada, and the UK through my fund, Sterling Road. I've also worked at other venture capital firms like Trinity Ventures and Bullpen Capital, where I was an entrepreneur in residence and an advisor. Before being an investor, I was also an entrepreneur, most notably an early employee at the social media analysis company, Clamp, as well as a CEO and co-founder of SendUp. Uh, these days, I spend most of my time coaching founders, and I've helped more than a 1,000 startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Rev. We build tools that help people acquire innovation skills and start companies. This is my second startup. The first one was a crypto startup. We started it back in 2013 and sold it back in 2018. Since then, I've spent a good minute supporting founders as an advisor and through Rev. Lastly, I never turned down a good chance to learn from the great ones. So a big thanks to Sean and Ash for bringing the heat every time we chat. And we're only bringing the heat mostly because it actually is really hot when we're recording this right now. So if you hear us sweating a little bit, it's not the stress of answering the questions. It's the actual physical heat of the weather. But we will carry on. We're going to show that founder grit that's so important. And we will continue the podcast, even though we wish our ACs went up a little bit higher. So That's right. Oh, you have AC. What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very tough for Sean on the yacht. So you know, they have to have AC. <laughs> that's right. When you're, when you're touring around the Caribbean, it can get you know higher on the temperature side. So they just have to have some of those kinds of creature comforts just to survive, really. It's, so it's right. rough on the high seas. That's right. That, well, AC actually stands for actual capital as compared to crypto, in case you're curious about the difference there. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's go to our question queue. The first question up, this was submitted again by, by uh, one of our listeners out there. And the question is, what corporate structure should you have? And does it even matter? What do you think? Nick, start us off. Let's do it. Yeah. So first, a quick note about why one incorporates a company in general. Typically, incorporating your company is a great way to protect yourself and the team from certain legal liabilities. It also makes sure the company owns the IP you create, and it makes it easier to divide ownership of the company. So um, through this conversation, the general topic has to do with venture-backed startups or startups that want to raise venture capital. And so if you want to raise venture capital, the gold standard is for your company to be a Delaware C-Corp. And in many cases, an investor will require you to be a Delaware C-Corp for them to invest. 
The good news is that you've got great tools available to help with that process. Of course, consult an attorney. That being said, you can look to tools such as Stripe, Atlas, AngelList Stack. There are great tried and true tools to stick the landing on this. Uh, with that, though, Ash, I'm sure you've seen some creative and potentially ill-advised corporate structures. Why do investors love a Delaware C-Corp so much? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so investors want a Delaware C-Corp for lots of reasons. First of all, it limits the liability of the investors and the founders. It makes it easy to do things like hand out equity to employees and advisors. And it also uh, is a standard structure for people like the banks to get involved for maybe things like debt, etc. So lots of reasons why you want a Delaware C-Corp. If you're going to build a startup, you want to raise VC money, uh, then the Delaware C-Corp is the way to go. Now, a lot of people maybe start with an LLC or maybe they have a foreign entity and they want to wait on their fundraising to being completed before they do that switch. That's the wrong way to think about it. You want to do the switch before you raise money. That's going to entice investors more. Uh, usually, you want to make sure that you only issue shares to the founders. I know it's tempting to perhaps issue them to random advisors, uh, maybe former employers who spun you out, those kinds of things. But if those people have double-digit stakes uh, and you don't have maybe founders on a vesting schedule, you can find yourself in a, uh, in a position where investors aren't interested because there's people who are maybe dormant in the company with, with large chunks of the company. So in terms of corporate structure, Delaware C Corp, switch it early on if you've already uh, if you've registered something else, and then make sure uh, that nobody except the founders have more than a double digit uh, percentage of the company, especially early on. Quick, quick question for you, Ash. Let's say you're there's a lot of startups that are obviously not always in the U.S. and and some of our listeners aren't in the U.S. either. So European companies, some companies in Asia, I know a lot of them do set up US-based entities and Delaware C-Corps. But as an investor, when you're looking at a company that is not based in the US, uh, maybe all the employees are in Europe and they have a European entity that is owned by a US entity in Delaware. How do you think about that as an investor? Is there things to look for or mistakes you can make? Well, that's certainly better than just being solely based in your headquarter country, right? So US investors are much more likely to invest in a Delaware C-Corp of a company that is largely based elsewhere. If you want to come to the middle ground of that, I'd say sell to the United States. So if you have customers that are based in the US, uh, as well as being a Delaware C-Corp, even if your uh, engineers, your um, the majority of your team members, your offices are in another country, that's probably going to be okay. But the closer you are to the US market, the more likely you are to find U.S. investors interested. Fair enough. And if you if you have if you're, if you're an international founder, one thing that you should note is there is capital available everywhere. There's investors everywhere, but U.S. investors, at least now in 2022, they still give by far the best terms for companies. And so, if possible, raising from U.S. based investors can have a lot of good benefits for you down the line. Enough legal talk. Let's move on to funner topics like, um, I don't know, sports, the weather. Nick, what else is on our question queue today? Yeah. So question two is a weather question. No, I'm kidding. All right. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's fast forward now. So you stuck the landing on becoming a Delaware C Corp. Now you've got a, a startup that is rapidly growing. Question here is how do you scale hiring? And so Sean and Ash, what's your take on this? Basically, you have to spend more time on it. Most people don't like recruiting. Most people don't spend 80, 90% of their time on it, but it's one of the most important jobs, if not the most important job at your startup. If you have two or three co-founders, it's probable 
that one of you should be almost 100% on it. And that means a large amount of delegation. In terms of how you actually get candidates in the pipeline at scale, I prefer the all of the above approach. So that means you're going to find candidates literally wherever you can. So you're going to post your jobs on social media, angel list, community boards. So if you went through an accelerator program, make sure they're always posted there. Use the marketplaces like Hired.com. Make sure your investors have your logo on their website. If they have a jobs board, make sure it's on there. And then, of course, a lot of people use contingency uh, fee-based recruiters. I personally don't like them, but I've kind of given up trying to preach that gospel to most startups because of the incentive structure being off. But most startups do use them to fill up their pipeline. Uh, and then the number one way, uh, in my opinion, is to get an in-house recruiter. If you have more than three job openings uh, right now that need to be filled, then it's totally reasonable to get an in-house recruiter, in my opinion. And you can start with a contractor that you can embed with your team. And there's a lot of agencies out there that'll uh, help you with that. But given the importance of the job over the long term, probably want somebody who's full-time, who's getting equity-based compensation. But in-house recruiters are a great way to scale. Tell me more about this contingency recruiter um, allergy that you seem to have. I mean, a lot of us do use contingency recruiters to recruit for our teams, but it sounds like you're pretty down on them. What's the what's the challenge? Yeah, the problem is that they're not really incentivized in the right way, in my opinion. First of all, they can just send you tons and tons of candidates without really filtering them because they just want something, anything to stick. And then obviously they keep a close relationship with the candidates that they place so at some point, the incentive structure switches where it's essentially uh, in the recruiter's interest to try and poach that employee and move them to another company. So it kind of creates a mercenary mentality amongst uh, the people that you work with. Now, of course, I want everyone to have whatever opportunities uh, might be available to them, but I prefer not to be working with somebody who I know every two years is trying to cycle my employees out to somewhere else. Uh, I hear you. Although the flip side, I think a a, quality employees are always trying to be poached by recruiters and B, I just, the the flip side of everything you just said is contingency recruiters again, have the networks and it's interesting. It's a trade-off. Well, maybe there's, there's more food for thought, but Nick, what do you think, man? What are your thoughts on scaling up hiring? Yeah, it's interesting because I think as is the case with a lot of these, there's some tried and true methodologies and many of which that Ash has listed out here. Part of, of course, is getting massively creative in the early days just to make sure that your name is out there. And so some of the things that we've seen work really well definitely include leveraging your network in a huge way. And so as you're sending your monthly status updates to investors, make it really easy for them to know what your ask is. And in this case, often adding people to your team is a big win. And so include the job links, include details for who you're looking for using investor job boards, using the classic job boards such as AngelList and LinkedIn. Those are huge. And the one thing that we've loved over time too is going to places where the talent is spending its time. And so this has been going to hackathons. We've spent a ton of time in hackathons building great networks of of candidates, many of which um, have become great friends, and we've been able to be able to add to the team in doing so. And so think creatively about ways you can be able to amplify how you go about it. Have you hosted any breakfasts? (laughs) (laughs) The pancakes, the pancakes. Pancake breakfasts for hiring. Does that work? We should have. You're so true. Random question. We hosted a hackathon. We did. And so that was something that was uh, quite exciting and worked out well for us. But we didn't combine the pancake breakfast with the hackathon. 
But uh, I think you've given us something. That's a missed opportunity. I mean, we're talking about the Avengers here, right? It's so true. You're spot on there. Man, I well, I've hired so many people over the years. What can I add? You guys have covered a lot of the bases. Let's see. Well, first, I I want to be really clear. When we talk about scaling hiring, I usually think about that as when you're more than 10 people and you're trying to get to 20 or 30 or 40 people. But in my experience, your first dozen employees are not people applying your job listings and your website. You have to go find them. But once you get to be big enough, to, to everybody's point here, Ash and, and Nick, People will start applying to your, your your jobs. It's just to their point, most job applicants are not a good fit for the job postings. And so it is enormously time intensive. Ash covered that. You have to realize that it doesn't feel very productive. So if you're used to being an engineer or a salesperson and going out there really doing your thing, hiring will feel very frustrating because it feels like you're not doing anything, like you're not achieving anything. You're running in place. And it, that's how it can feel. And it is a real feeling. We just have to overcome it and keep at it because hiring is unlike other things. There's no progress meter. It's not that if you, you know, you work in, you're halfway done, you're three quarters of the way done. It's a continuous process. You invest the time. You might find the perfect employee after a day and you might not find any employees after three or four months. So it becomes a continuous investment. You have to just keep putting effort in. It feels like you're banging your head against the wall. I know that feeling. I've been there. It, it's hard no matter what you've done and you just have to keep at it. It's essentially, and that I think what Ash said at the beginning is absolutely right. You have to commit a large amount of your time and not give yourself the option to do anything else. At this time, maybe it's 50% of my time or hundred percent of my co-founders time. That's going to hiring. They don't have the luxury of doing anything else because I will tell you, I've hired lots of people in my career, hundreds of people. I've lost track at this point, but if I ever had an option to do literally anything else, I would do that. I would find an excuse to put hiring aside and go do something else. So you have to make sure it's not, you're not tempted to put hiring off and do something else you enjoy more. You really just have to put the work in. And that includes like chewing rocks, right? Like genuinely <laughs> anything else other than writing people emails about how wonderful their resume is and saying, oh, I'd love to just chat with you for 15 minutes, please. Yes, nobody likes doing it, folks. And everyone That's has right. to send those emails and that includes you. But there is a, there, the good news is there is light at the end of the tunnel. If your team gets to be, in my experience, around 20, 25 people, you have enough people that all of a sudden lots of people can invest in hiring. You can have, you probably at that point have a full-time recruiter, like Ash mentioned, but in general, you have enough people where you're not having to do it all yourself. And so it pays for itself. If you invest the time in scaling hiring, you hire enough people and hiring is therefore by definition scaled because there's more people to do it. So if you put the effort in, it's not like this is a burden you'll have forever. It's just really trying to get the engine started so you're off to the races. But if you can do it correctly, it's a competitive advantage. Companies that have efficient, scaled hiring systems, they win in markets because they can grow their teams with better people faster than the competition. So good luck. I'm sure we'll cover many other questions on hiring in future questions. In fact, if you have a question on hiring, please do toss it in. We'd love to cover it in a future episode. Okay, we have time for one more question. Ash, what else is on our question queue for today? Yeah, one last question from me. Uh, and this one I see often, obviously, with plenty of co-founder breakups. Of course, I've never experienced any um, anything but uh, the happiest and agreeable co-founder interactions. But uh, other companies I've read about uh, have had this issue. So how do you resolve <laughs> co-founder disagreements? How do you resolve co-founder disagreements? 
Oh, man. I, I don't want to, Nick, but I'll take this one first. It's uh, First off, I don't think everybody knows this. And this is just my experience. Ash or Nick, you tell me if you disagree. But from what I see, co-founder fighting, infighting, and falling out is, seems to be the leading cause of death of startup companies. Um, many of them don't even get to like the first version of the product if there's co-founder conflict. It's really a difficult issue that everybody encounters. And in fact, if you see most of these companies that get to scale that start out with more than one founder, it's actually kind of rare that all the founders are still there when they get to scale. When I like, I mean, like 10 years down the line and they're getting ready to go public. It's like a really sobering statistic. So co-founder f- conflict is real. Uh, what can you do? The first thing you hear me say this a lot here in the podcast, but expectation setting is so important because the lack of expectation setting is the root of most conflicts. And so if you and your co-founder have different ideas to what you expect about how fast a company should grow or how long you want to invest or what your role will be in the life of the company, conflict can arise if your expectations don't match. So be really clear and explicit about your, your expectations. How long can you work for a reduced salary? How long do you think it will be before the company gets to certain milestones? If you think it will take two years to get to your first financing round and your co-founder is expecting more like three months, you got to get ahead of that. So start off with expectation setting, build trust, make sure your co-founders and you are taught are doing things that aren't just work together, get lunch, do activities, build that social relationship, invest in it over time. But eventually you're going to have conflict anyway. It's just how life goes. And so when the conflict happens, the very first thing you can do is try to have a really clear conversation about why not not why there's a conflict you probably know exactly what you're arguing about or fighting about but why does it matter so much why is this turning into a fight versus just a debate or a discussion what about it is more heavily weighted in the emotional realm what is the expectation behind it what was what happened that really put more weight on this and once you have that if you can hopefully you can get to the root of it if you can't if you can't take a structured approach to it you can try to bring in outside people to, to mediate, such as board members, maybe advisors, people you trust. It's hard. In the end, these disagreements, you end up eventually having to typically make a decision and just agree to disagree, commit and move on with the company. Hopefully, it doesn't turn into a worse scenario, in which case you're talking about how to part ways with them. We talked about that in a, another episode around firing people. But hopefully, there is common ground. But at the very least, if you end up having to disagree... Uh, unfortunately the ceo's decision stands you just have to disagree and commit and by the way your ability to disagree and commit meaning commit to a decision you may not agree with is one of the leading indicators that your company's going to make it because if you can do that you can overcome almost anything nick what did i miss man yeah this is so good when you were describing the expectation setting it reminded me of there's a credit card commercial where the one of the individuals is trying to purchase frog insurance, so insurance for a frog. And then the person on the other line is saying, yes, we offer fraud insurance, uh, F-R-A-U-D. <laughs> and so it, uh, That's fantastic. And by the way, Nick, what was your credit card number again? Can you just read it off <laughs> on the podcast right. here for everyone? Uh, we'll just tweet it out after the show. Is that a good way for us to do it? <laughs> yeah. So the it was so funny because as you were describing that, I thought that was spot on expectation setting and making sure you're on the same page is so key. And very frequently, there's this thought that as co-founders, you're saying, yes, we're on the same page. We're seeing eye to eye. And instead, perhaps the right way to go about it is assume that you're not seeing eye to eye and really triage early and often 
to make sure that you are on the right page. It might be as simple as at the end of every meeting or at the end of every week saying, is there anything massive that we're missing? Are we making any big omissions in terms of how we're just thinking about these next steps? Make that something that's part of your, uh, you know, built into the process for your startup. So managing expectations and seeing eye to eye early and often is always in season. Another tip that I love to think about and share is ultimately there's going to be plenty of decisions that really do demand a lot of good debate uh, between you and your co-founder or co-founders. And so one thing that can really help is to change your quote unquote battle arena. So if you're in the office, in a conference room, battling something over and over, or perhaps you've been just locked on Zoom debating something, very frequently just being able to change your environment, take a walk to discuss the conversation, uh, create a new environment where maybe you're discussing it over coffee at a cafe, find ways to introduce new perspectives into your discussion, because ultimately, very often a debate or this gridlock can be a result of just not understanding somebody and not understanding their point of view and getting a fresh perspective might make it easier for you to be able to uh, go deeper and really understand where they're coming from. That being said, having the right co-founders makes these conver- these kind of conversations a lot more achievable in a really big way. No, man, I can't even. Uh, yes, yes. Ash, I'm curious, you, you'd see many more founding teams than we do. Are there signs that these disagreements are systemic, that there's something that just can't be fixed um, versus like disagreements that are just a normal course of business, warning signs that maybe this is a deeper problem than just a disagreement? Yeah, uh, lack of respect. If the co-founders don't respect each other, then that causes big problems. Lots of different ways that can manifest. It might be simply ignoring the feedback of another co-founder. It might be shouting matches. Uh, you know, uh, challenges in front of other people, other team members, those kinds of things, uh, ignoring the person. These these kinds of behaviors usually indicate a downward spiral is in progress or <laughs> about to start, uh, and they almost always have the exact same result, which is one person has to depart. And you should be really careful about the early signs of those kinds of things, perhaps when you're choosing your co-founders as well. So if you're often talking over each other, if it's very hard to find agreement on basic stuff, if you find that when you do collaborate on things, it's really challenging, even if you have a shared vision, even if you both want to build a company, it's probably not going to work out for the two of you together in this particular way. And same if there's three or four of you. But but keep in mind, if you lack respect, your co- your company might not work out, but your podcast can be a huge success because <laughs> very appropriately have no respect for me. And look at how well we're doing. So don't worry. There's always hope, a glimmer of hope on the horizon, which I appreciate. We're, we're unfortunately out of I have time. a lot of respect for sailors such as yourself. I mean, I think that <laughs> bearing the high seas and exploring the unknown is a very admirable cause. Uh, and I, of course, the podcast would be naught without you. <laughs> Which I appreciate. And on that note, we haven't run out of time. We'll have more time in the future episodes for more questions. So if you have a question you'd like us to cover in a future episode, let us know. Find us on Twitter. We are the Startup HD or on the web, thestartuphelpdesk.com. Just go there, ask your questions. We'll cover them in future episodes. 
as always, Nick and Ash, thank you for bestowing knowledge on everyone and putting up with my horrible sense of humor. Thank you both. Absolute blast as always. Thanks, guys. And we will be back. Thanks for joining us for the Startup Help Desk. 